we are com convinced that contrary to the stories of the New York Times, which uh, are not correct, and contrary to the, the lead-in to this uh, interview of Trump unplugged, that Trump is very plugged in. He's very connected. I really don't care if they meet. I really appreciate what President Trump has done to crush the Iranian economy because they're on trying to build a nuclear weapon and dismember the Mideast. I think I will, in a combination of uh, loss and opportunity, probably it'll cost me anywhere from three to five billion dollars to be president. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So at the G7 summit, whose every progressive initiative and expression of hope, Trump attempted to bulldoze so he could burn the Amazon and put in a golf course made of salt. There were some things that got lost. First off, I think Trump thinks Jeff Bezos owns the Amazon and that's why he wants it to burn. But I digress. Well, it was rightly noted that Trump skipped the climate meeting, claiming the climate crisis is too niche a subject for him. He did attend a convocation of the G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council, which presented its report on gender equality and its recommendations for advancing gender equality in the empowerment of girls and women. Some of this is translated from the French, so sorry about the repetition. It also released a call to action, citing extraordinary statistics, specifically that 41% of countries use the system of social organization known officially as patriarchy, where men legally dominate women in the household and in public space. The report amounts to a bill of rights for women and other non-males and asks that G7 nations collaborate on practical initiatives to achieve certain ambitious ends by 2030. They want to end gender-based violence, ensure equitable and quality education and health for women, promote economic empowerment, and ensure full equality between men and women in public policies. They call this list of initiatives the Baritz Partnership. It's like the Paris Accords. And it's an extraordinary document and set of protocols. I wish it had gotten more coverage. They asked all the G7 leaders, including Donald Trump, to roll back laws that subjugate women in the U.S. This means instituting paid family leave and lifting all restrictions on reproductive rights. Yeah, Trump will get right on that. So once again, we have to wait for that impeachment. Only Trumpcast is still waiting for it, I think. And we also have to wait for November 2020. Only then might we be rid of the planet abuser in the White House. And only then might we see common sense changes made to our sweet old fucked up world. But the Baritz partnership is well worth reading. You can find it on the page of the extraordinary G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council, well worth looking up. My guest today is Maya Garantz. Warning, she's another one of those humans that I, I st stand a little bit. Does that expression stand still work? My kids told me it was over. Anyway, I'm a huge admirer of Maya, an artist, journalist, and astute political observer, astute and imaginative. She first came to my attention when she wrote a terrifying story in the Los Angeles Review of Books about Paul Manafort that had both all the reporting details and all the questions we were too afraid to ask about his abuse of his wife and what turned out to be both the complicity and the outcry of his children. 
Maya's work has enormous implications for this period of Nietzschean overmen, including Manafort, Epstein, Trump, Patrick Byrne, late of Overstock, and the hundreds of others whom this show has had to reckon with. I'll be back with Maya in just a minute, but first, the tweets. The G7 was a great success for the United States and all. Lamestream media coverage bore no relationship to what actually happened in France. Fake news. It was great. Starting to look good for highly respected Prime Minister of the Italian Republic, Giuseppe Conte, represented Italy powerfully at the G7. Loves his country greatly and works well with the USA, a very talented man who will hopefully remain prime minister. Just returned to Washington from France and the very successful G7, only to find that the fake news is still trying to perpetrate the phony story that I wanted to use nuclear weapons to blow up hurricanes before they reach the shore. This is so ridiculous. Never happened. My stock market gains must be judged from the day after the election, November 9th, 2016, where the market went up big after the win and because of the win. Had my opponent won, garage. In France, we are all laughing at how knowingly inaccurate the U.S. reporting of events and conversations at the G7 is. These leaders and many others are getting a major case study of fake news at its finest. They got it all wrong from Iran to China tariffs to Boris. Maya, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. I mean, I wanted to do this ages ago when your incredible piece in the Los Angeles Review of Books, which is also a great publication, came out um, nominally about Paul Manafort, but about so much more. Can you just walk listeners through that piece? And we will have a link in the show notes because you guys got to read this. So what happened was in November of 2017, Paul Manafort's daughter, Andrea, had her phone hacked, possibly by Ukrainians who are still pissed at Paul. We don't know. Uh, (laughs) But hundreds of thousands of her texts were released online. And in these texts, these texts enough were confirmed to be true Mm -hmm. that they've been used in every article about Paul Manafort, Mm -hmm. every major profile. Franklin Four uses them quite extensively in his Atlantic article, the Business Insider, political, like everyone used these texts as an explainer for Paul Manafort, they would talk about his affair. They would talk about the daughters saying things like, all of our money is blood money and yeah. we just eating the lobster as if nothing happened. Yep. They talk about his time as Trump's campaign manager. So all of these texts were out there. And there was this one cluster of texts that no one wanted to touch, like zero people wanted to touch it. And it was nowhere. Right. And in those texts, The daughters talk about how their father, Paul Manafort, made their mother, Kathleen Manafort, have group sex with black men. Right. In those words. Yeah. So have gangbangs. Have gangbangs. Yeah. 
did Andrea say gangbangs? She said something oh, yes, like that. Yes. Right. Okay. And they used the word rape and their marriage was kind of falling apart. And part of the deal was that the mom didn't want to do it anymore. And he said, this is a guarantee of our remaining married. And he's having an affair with a much younger woman and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And people would talk about the affair. They would talk about uh, on, on salacious gossip blogs about his membership to these BDSM sex clubs in New York. But no one wanted to touch this. <laughs> yeah, it was it was very strange because that money we have is blood money and other quotations from those texts that floated around um, were written into the record. You know, it was yes. like it was like even the family knew the money was blood money when he hadn't been yet charged with anything. People were still yes. saying that this was before he became Trump's campaign manager. Yes. So there was no kid gloves around the rest of the text. There was nothing like, according to hacked emails that we should treat, you know, with a, a, a huge amount of skepticism, uh, hacked texts that his daughters suspected that his money was ill gotten. Nothing like that. And the way that I found them, uh, I have a friend. Maura Brewer, who's an amazing video artist, and she was looking at Jess Manafort, who's a filmmaker, yeah. um, had this movie in 2007 called Remember the Days. It's kind of this like coming of age, rich kids, coming of age story. And it was funded in large part by Paul Manafort. And so Maura was recutting Jess's original film to turn it into a documentary about money laundering. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, Wow. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. And in doing that, she used the texts as part of the source material in constructing this this experimental documentary. And she found those. And she called me and she was like, I found this thing that's secret, but anyone can access it. And I really think you need to write about it. Hmm. And that's how it started. Meaning those portions of the texts. Yes. Yes. Those portions of the text. You're right that people were whispering about the BDSM thing, and I almost feel like I might have heard this this gangbang phenomenon. It, things mix in my head, and I hope you'll forgive me for what did Roger Stone do because he had his own pervy ways, and what did, and and all of this is now going into the vault because we have so many other new uh, monstrous oh, overmen to worry God. about. But anyway, so why did you? unlike others, feel confident quoting those texts? And why did others not? Well, I think others didn't because as journalism, I mean, one thing that you notice uh, about Me Too, for instance, is that journalists are being very careful to scaffold any accusation with a lot of sourcing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like like one of the stories I remember, I can't even remember which Me Too article it was, but it was like, we talked to a hundred people who all told us. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, And this is not something that's ever going to be proven. I think Roger Stone is an interesting case. And I talk about it in the essay. People can talk about Roger Stone. In some ways, you can talk about it if it's explicitly uh, rape. If somebody's making an explicit accusation and you mm-hmm. can talk about it if it's explicitly consensual, because then it's kind of funny and it, and people's, you know, oh, desires yeah. can be a figure of fun. Yeah. But this is this weird thing that exists in this in-between space. It's not like Mrs. Manafort is going on the record making these accusations. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can find these people who are hired to participate in these group sex activities. You're not going to get the sources that confirm this. You're just yeah. not. Yeah. And so I wanted to treat it not as a journalist who's trying to prove that it happened. Mm -hmm. I was more interested because it could be that those texts were inserted by the Ukrainian hackers. 
Mm-hmm. We don't know. Right. Uh, but I wanted to look at it as this really amazing cultural artifact, both the texts and the silence around the text. Oh, yes. Yeah. The inability of people to talk, because once you get to why can't people talk about this, mm-hmm. you get to so many things about race and about Me Too and about uh, when women are willing to actually tell the bad stories. And yeah. it's generally once a relationship, professional or personal, is over. Right. And yes. when they're still in the middle of it, yes. if their boss is that guy, they're never going to tell that story. Yeah. And it got to conspiracy theory thinking. And it got to uh, the ways that somehow Republicans are always doing in private what they're fighting in public. Paul yes. Manafort was a young star uh, Republican political consultant and rat fucker. Yeah. At the moment when Republicans were using communism and the, and the Cold War as a bludgeon to beat the Democrats with over civil rights. Like they didn't have anything else. So they were like, ah, these people who are pro-civil rights are commies. And now you're in this moment where these Republicans are working for Russians and with Russians. Yes. And, uh, and so it's this also this big story about the Republican party. And it felt like a conspiracy theory. It felt like I was writing a conspiracy theory because I'm saying it's all connected. There's a style of this piece that felt like I almost felt guilty and like anxious reading it. And I had to say, this is in the, in the, uh, you know, this is in the LA review of books. It's okay. It's not, uh, you know, I'm not, this isn't like a strange art installation that I'm not allowed to like it to introduce into the world of news. And there was a way that the piece is on the knife's edge of I'm allowed to use these methodologies on this cache of texts, this methodologies from the arts and the humanities and literary analysis. But the other weird thing here about the kid glove treatment or the the denial around these particular texts and the exploitation of the other texts goes to why is it perfectly, it seems perfectly fine for anyone on Twitter and even in articles in the New Republic to say Manafort persecuted Yulia Tymoshenko for and essentially got her imprisoned and, and enfeebled, handicapped, landed her in a wheelchair because he was working for the brutal dictator Yanukovych who was aligned with the Kremlin or all kinds of other ways that he was head of the torturers lobby, which we know in 1992, head of the torturers lobby. You know, he was called in a paper excoriating him and Stone for their work for dictators. Oh, even Spy Magazine was rating all of those lobbies at the time, like in the 90s. And they gave their lot. They gave Manafort Stone a a five bloody hand rating. <laughs> yes, <laughs> amazing. Rating, I mean, yeah. it was Ferdinand Mar. It's all the sort of big names the ca- in Kenya and everywhere that were violating human rights, right and left, and committing war crimes, and some of them against women. So yes. we've connected those dots, even though he never was tried, uh, never indicted. So there was no due process around this, but somehow it was an open secret, and it was just allowed to go on. Where oh no sexual habits, but as like as alleged by or as noticed by at least the daughters are considered a quote family matter that need to, yeah. you know, the nothing to see here. It's just a family matter. Go away. The wife beater at the door when the cops come and, you know, to take away the kids or whatever. And why those 
particular delicacies, even in the Me Too movement, around what looks like a brutal set of domestic and sex practices that are criminal. Right, right, that are criminal. And also that, I mean, and this was another thing that I was so fascinated by, like, aren't the Republicans the ones who said that private sexual behavior is something that marks you as a public figure. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. why is that only, you know, but that only applies it's to only Democrats. Bill Clinton. It's right. only Bill Clinton That's and right. maybe and John Edwards. The transition of moving it to personal morality happened when the Cold War ended. Yeah. So all of these things are kind of braided together in yeah. these really strange ways that I found really interesting. Really interesting. And I think you and I came of age in a time when we were supposed to think that Bill Clinton should do what he wants on his own time or, oh, come on, if you were 19 or 21 or whatever, you would have slept with the president, too. And that's all sexy and progressive. And I remember in particular people saying, well, if we were French, we would look the other way at Mitterrand's <laughs> other family that, you know, we're Puritans here. And, you know, you and I and lots of other feminists have changed on this score and have changed with respect to Bill Clinton and probably want to mark that passage. And certainly, and Clinton and Lewinsky were consensual. Monica Lewinsky's never said otherwise. But in this case, we've just had example after example of domestic abusers being also corrupt and having, you know, bad ideologies in the public sphere. Yes. Yes. It is crazy to me that financial corruption, bad ideology, and domestic abuse or rape go together. It's like Jeffrey Epstein wouldn't be the whacked out, you know, finance money launderer, human trafficker, if he wasn't also abusing girls and if he wasn't also advocating that he should spread his seed everywhere, a terrible ideology. Absolutely. But I think what's hard about this, not just for the men who are like, "Uh, I don't want to touch it. Part of the reason people don't want to touch it is because they don't know how. Yeah, it's it's because it's complicated. And part of what makes it complicated is is female complicity in it. And my friend Mora found Jessica's texts more interesting. I found Andrea's texts very interesting because you see how tormented she is. Yeah. By the complicity of it, like that she's trying to get dad to pay for her wedding. Yes. And and she's like, once the last check is cut, F him. Like, yes. Yeah. Like, like once the last check is cut. Right. Like she's still fielding congratulations about him being Trump's campaign manager. She's still saying, yeah, I think Trump's going to be the better businessman. Yes, that's right. There there are complicities. So I was thinking a lot about the 53% of white women who voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. And we see this right now where, uh, and we've seen this throughout American history where white women, poor white people, people are going to throw their lot with the oppressor if they feel like it gives them more power. And I feel like that's the story about Me Too that's still uh, tricky to to unwind, is the ways that, that everybody, to some extent, is braided up in these complicities. And we have a hard time knowing how to separate those two. And I can understand why certain men are like, oh, the rules are changing. It's like, yeah, the rules are changing. And a lot of time women participated in those rules because that's how they're going to get close to power and win. Yeah. And so, yeah, it must be confusing right now. Right. <laughs> like it's confusing for everybody. Did you, I'm sure you did. But listen to the line of the whole parade of Larry Nasser's victims who each got to give their Ugh. their victim statements. And so many of them stay in your heads. But uh, Little Girls Don't Stay Little Girls Forever is yeah. sort of is one, one of the ones I, I keep thinking of. And part of 
the complicity that's lost, and I can't speak to Kathleen Manafort, but is that the same people who, you know, same people who, women who were young and who were um, either kind of willing to accept, let's say, some flirtation in the workplace if it also pro- promised a certain kind of advancement and, you know, the the Helen Gurley Brown tricks that she yes. codified entirely oh, in Cosmopolitan. You know, absolutely. of course you sleep with people. Well, because I think at, at when you're, you're too young to know that you think that you're being seen yeah. as a complete person and you right. don't know that you're actually being reduced. You think this is just another way of being seen. That was one of the things about surviving R. Kelly. The women over and over and over were like, I was so naive. I was yes, so naive. Yes. And Helen Gurley Brown, we just did, I have a podcast that takes apart politics and culture. Yeah. And we were talking about E. Jean Carroll and how like, it's like the Judith Krantz version of feminism. Yes. Yes. You're just going to go out there and just fuck a lot and yes. be awesome at your job yes. and it's all going to kind of, and there are going to be no negative consequences for that. Yes. You're, you're going to be so awesome. Yes. And, yes. And I think that that's totally like part of what we're like, Oh, doesn't yeah. work out so well. Well, I mean, E. Jean, we had E. Jean on this show. She was extremely interesting. And one of the things that I think we've seen women do, maybe you've done this in your life and I have too, is sort of let the older woman in me be a witness to the, to the experiences of younger woman and 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 keep that somewhat separate because like drawing a continuous line in our own lives doesn't acknowledge that uh do me feminism which was an actual phrase for younger listeners who haven't heard that that was an actual phrase and it was front and center even in academic life in in the 90s so this was positivity yes and 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 the samantha character in uh in sex in the city that you know was supposed to have basically masculine sexual appetites and why shouldn't she you know behave just like a man kind of love them and leave them and just in it for the sex and and you know we shouldn't think that that archetype is gone but you know someone like eugene has really had to wrestle with the fact that she might not get to tell an unbroken story about what happened to her. And it might not f- easily fold into the Helen Gurley Brown narrative. And But that also doesn't mean that we need to spend the rest of this, ideally, period of truth and reconciliation self-flagellating for our complicity and patriarchy. And if I may push this a little bit more... I just finished writing for the LA Times, actually, about um, the men who've contacted me from being casualties or perps in Me Too, who are now seeking help in sex and love addicts, which is, as far as I can tell so far, the only amends that at least makes sense. But basically, they see themselves as also, which is what we should do, also caught up in what can only be called patriarchy. That patriarchy, they are also victims of patriarchy. They were also crushed in a system. Patriarchy not being a word for misandry, but being akin to something like monarchy, communism, right? So we have a system of patriarchy, and all of us are liberated through something like the Me Too movement. And that's how these guys feel too. Thank you for telling me that my manliness was not contingent on my possessing and oppressing women. But I think that there's this weird thing that you see right now. And we just did an episode called Return of the Douchebags, where we're looking at Aziz Ansari and Al Franken and Mark Halperin. And there's this way that I think for some of them, 
you can't live in shame, but you have to live in open acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really hard balance for a lot of people. I thought it was very interesting, the sort of inability, like they, they can't, they just really can't believe they did something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so the John Hockenberry, John Ganeshi. Are, they're yeah. always very hollow because, yeah. and I understand you don't want to live in shame. You have to face parts of yourself that are really shitty, yeah. but there's, there's that way that I think it's hard for a lot of men. Like, I don't think they're being given the tools to be honest about their place in it yes. and have a path forward. Yes. Let's put yeah. it that way. So instead you see a lot of like, Mm, stuff where I'm like, I don't think you've learned anything, my friend. Um, yeah. And I think that when you have somebody, and I find Roger Stone, it was funny because two weeks before the essay came out, Michael Che made this joke on Saturday Night Live about Roger Stone and how he looks like he gets, you know, black men to bang his wife. And mm -hmm. I looked it up and he does. <laughs> and it's not true. He was he was mixing up the two stories. Okay. Roger Stone, that wasn't his fetish. His fetish <laughs> was, you know, he liked... Uh, clean, well, you know, fit men to uh, have threesomes with him and his wife. Mm -hmm. um, and he was very open about it. And it seemed consensual. And they published ads in Swinger magazines or whatever. Yeah. And there's a way that he was so punished by that being revealed. Yeah. But he's still angry at the Democratic Party when it's his party and his style of rat fucking that fucked his own career. Yes, yes. It's like he's so... It's it's he's such an interesting character because he is a libertarian or libertine and he's like yes. I'm a trisexual I'll try anything yeah and he's he's trying to play that he's this bohemian sexual character and yet he he's so resentful of uh, of a political party or of a left movement that might be trying to break down the rules yeah that that he's suffering from. Yes, Roger Stone comes as close as possible to the kind of honest poly, you know, <laughs> style, the, the what is it, ethical slut that's ethical meant to be. Ethical slut, yeah, totally. Right? The sort of like lefty idea that, you know, any kink is possible as long as you're honest and not hurting people with it. And right. whether how, how that works or doesn't work in poly, I can't testify to. On the other hand, these guys are clearly not at peace with and candid about their own sexual practices. And in some ways, you can almost and this, you know, we've also abandoned talking about the Steele report because it had a few errors in it, which right. is extremely interesting because I and I think I don't know, I hope that conscientious readers of the Steele dossier didn't. It's it's hard not to be prurient enough to be in, interested a little bit in golden showers, but <laughs> but but black boxing that basically it was a, you know, a list of. It was a catalog of the things that Donald Trump could be blackmailed for. So the problem with hiring black men to uh, rape your wife so that you watch and you watch her do it, if, let's say, it does or doesn't qualify as domestic abuse, but the way that it works outside the domestic sphere is that you are now vulnerable to an enormous amount of blackmail. And I, you know, and that is where it thinks, you know, they say racism is a national security risk. Well, yes. certainly misogynistic violence is is a is a national oh, security risk. Absolutely. And we don't know anyone yet. Roger Stone, maybe it may be notwithstanding. But, you know, Jim Jordan doesn't seem all happy about having sat by while that coach abused boys on the wrestling team. He doesn't seem like, you know what? It's a crazy world. And the Greeks used to have sex with young men, too. And that's what <laughs> wrestling is. And this is the point that Adam Schiff and Mueller made, which is we really actually 
don't care about the details of your penis or right. your, you know, or even, you know, your dealings. If you want to sit around and talk to unsavory oligarchs, you know, knock yourself out. But what we care is that you care so much about it and you care so much oh. about the secret that you've put us in danger. So I have two thoughts about that. One is that, yeah, like in some ways, in the same way that like with the Steele dossier, there's this feeling that once you have those prurient details, it makes people run from the legitimacy of the larger file. Yes. Like they're like, I can't even deal with the idea of Donald Trump and golden showers. It must all be fake. It must all be fake. <laughs> like, yes. So like, and it's the same way that with these details about Manafort, it's like people ran away from it for months after these texts were hacked and mined for yes. all kinds of salacious things. I couldn't even find a tweet about the gangbang stuff. Like people were so resistant to talking yeah. about it. And I mean, you know, on Twitter, though, people are very decorous and have a very. Well, <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. No, like, no, not even exactly. on Twitter. Not right, even on exactly. Twitter. Not even in what <laughs> Brett Stevens calls are the you... sewer. Yeah, are they well, talking about it? Look, a bed bug is a bed bug. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing that's really interesting is the sort of ongoing. Um, so there was this movie that came out. Uh, this is the essay that I wrote before the Manafort piece, which I think set me up in a lot of ways for the Manafort piece. I wrote an essay about this movie that was released called Amerageddon. Okay. It's this movie that um, came out in the summer of 2016. I was doing a project about the gun debate, actually. Mm -hmm. And there's this real big fantasy in in Second Amendment circles that the U.S., you know, what what's behind the idea that they're going to come take my guns away? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fantasy, the conspiracy theory behind it is that the U.S. is going to have its infrastructure attacked uh, by an EMP, by something. Right. And it's going to cause the government to declare martial law, and then they're going to come take your guns away. And I thought, oh, I would like to make a video of that. And then I was like, oh, I, I don't have to bother. A movie version of that conspiracy theory just hmm. came out. Hmm. It was written, produced by, and stars Gary Heaven, who made his millions as the founder of the Curves Women Fitness Gym. Oh, yes, right. And in this movie, the, the U.S., you know, our infrastructure gets attacked so that Russia can infiltrate our government. And it's done mm. with collusion with the presidency. Oh, right. And, and I first saw this movie pretty much when it came out because I was working on this project. So you're saying it's a good the, theory. You're saying it's a I'm, strong theory. I'm saying <laughs> what's insane about it is yeah. that because this guy, Gary Heaven, was a birther. He was a 9-11 truther. He's yeah. a prepper. He's like, he was an early Trumper. Like yeah. any of those things. He's all of those yes. things. Yeah. How did he see collusion with Russia before the rest of us did, right? Yeah. And the more that, and I wanted to write about it, and it wasn't the right time, but then all this stuff came out about Russia and the NRA. And yeah. you just see the ways in which it's like that essay, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. Yes. It's like they perform the things that they're afraid of. Yes. They are doing, they are in some ways calling into reality yes. their greatest fears through their political power. Yes. And yes. it's like, that's why you have every, it's like a running gag at this point. Every fundamentalist Republican is doing in private what they're trying to legislate in public. And that includes collusion with Russia. There's a really recent example of um, 
and I sh- this is one of those things where I shouldn't I shouldn't give the details because I think I just read the headline. But where uh, <laughs> I think some dude in a kind of almost like a either a teaching or a Boy Scouts kind of setting uh, wanted the gay dudes fired on principle, his colleagues fired on principle, so he could continue to molest the boys. I mean, it yeah. was astounding. Yeah, I mean, you see, you see it all over the place. But do you see cracks? Sorry, but do you see cracks in how some of the men talk about it? Because I've heard Jerome Corsi, also a noted birther, and I don't know if he's a truther, but he has a lot of thoughts about the Kennedy assassination and so forth. <laughs> I mean, really, he'll go into talking about, but that was an Italian rifle, like just yeah, out of nowhere, yeah, yeah, you know? Sure, and, sure. And um, he. Uh, in a, in an interview with Ari Melber, he essentially conceded that he has serious mental illness. And I hear Patrick Byrne sounding a little bit that way. This is the the overstock CEO. I know you know this whole crowd who 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 went down in flames and and actually just said, you know what? Like essentially, I'm really too sick for this. Like, I can't do yeah. this job anymore. That's what I heard in him resigning as CEO. That's not the Mark Halperin thing of like, I'll just get another gig, one last heist. I'm going to do it. Right. That's, <laughs> that's you know what? I'm kind of licked here. I'm worried about the Sith God and, you know, the dark, deep state sure. and the merging of me and Maria Butina. And then he also did date Maria Butina. I so, know. I know. Oh, my God. Um, I was so, oh, it was so perfect when that happened. So do you see, do you see cracks? any cracks? You see people being very, 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 very defensive, like Brett Kavanaugh saying, just I'm going to go down to the ground without ever acknowledging any wrongdoing or any flaws or any sin or any humanness to me. Right. And good luck to you, Brett Kavanaugh. It's never worked for a human before, but good luck. But then I do think there are some around the margins, maybe some of these guys in SLAA, maybe some of the, uh, I don't know, sort of some of the Me Too men. And Tell me more. I think it's interesting that some of the biggest like pickup artist MRA guys are like, yes, I'm in therapy now and I kind of disavow all of my whole like pickup artist thing. Oh, there are some like, like that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're like going on talking tours about how they went into therapy and maybe treating women like objects was like not the healthiest thing for them. Yes. Um, oh, yes, that's I, right. There's some incels, yeah. some incels yes. who've rethought it. Yeah, there was there was something about that recently. And you can't some tell incels who realized that maybe the reason they weren't getting laid at 21 is because no one is getting laid at 21. <laughs> and then they're finally getting laid and they're like getting over their incels. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I would like to hope that that's true. But I feel like I like I, I did a project for a couple of years living in the Deep South yeah. and I saw uh, like in some rural town in Mississippi for like two years doing oral history based theater. It was like really amazing. And I see, I saw the way that, um, white people are still talking about the civil war Mm -hmm. and I see the cracks in the madness of the people who went too far. Am Mm -hmm. I seeing structural cracks? Hmm. I don't think so. I wish I could say that I did. I feel like I see the biggest structural cracks in the exciting work that's happening among like women and feminists and people of color and, and the men who are willing to come along on that ride. Yeah. But I think that when your power is so invested in this certain way of being, yeah. um, I think it's really hard. And I think when you then have to face, it's like I said earlier, when you have to face the shame of what you might've done and what you might've been and what you might be, it's a tall I order. People's response is very, I, I think people want an easy solution 
And it's not. It's an ongoing work. And I think that it's an ongoing work that a lot of people aren't up to, especially when there's no financial benefit in it for them. There's still a lot of benefit in being a total fucking misogynist. <laughs> so that is, I mean, finally, the, finally, these the issues of this overman class that I got to say, I noticed a little bit of it. Uh, you know, I was remembering that I was at a conference with John Searle, the philosopher, uh, a couple of years ago, who is a little bit in the Epstein orbit. Right. And <laughs> he was with a woman that he'd had flown in at great expense who was 50 years his junior. She's 20 oh, in, wow. in her early 20s and his 70s. Didn't speak English. And, you know, now I know that flight attendants who are now taught to see the signs of trafficking are, you know, literally supposed to look at age discrepant couples of different ethnicities, different languages traveling together where she's silent and she looked silent and terrified. And I'm saying this out here because it's what I saw. I sat with both of them and talked to them a long time. Now, this was 2016. Did I say it? One single thing about it. No. I was meeting John Searle's girlfriend. I was trying to talk to her. I was impressed by John Searle. And that was in my old age complicity with the system. Like, oh, that's impressive that he's there. I will say Marina Warner, who's an amazing actual oh, genius oh, folklorist. Oh, yes, oh, we can From the Beast to the Blonde is one of the greatest Un books. I felt like I felt like a virgin experiencing feminist theory for the very first time when absolutely. I read that. Absolutely. Like uh, yes. So, I mean, she also was married to a man who moved hard right. So she has an mm. interesting story and she moved away from him. But Marina uh, stood up. She's like a d actual dame of the, you know, so I'm like, she's a dame, Marina Warner. She stood up and she gave this lecture. And this is actually relevant. She gave a lecture on the iPhone and the and the, the so-called glabrous, like an art history term for really smooth, hairless skin on like a, yes. on, on marble yes. statuary. And yes. so she was talking about hairiness and hairlessness. And sh she mentioned in passing over, you know, waxed teenagers as a kind of porn uh, icon or whatever, and then kept going. John Searle, philosopher, Chinese box, sitting with his 50 years as junior girlfriend, raised his hand. It was a very small, the mention of porn was a very, very small part of it and said, surprise, surprise, tell me more about the girl, the waxed teenagers in pornography. And Marina Warner, this is what happens if you're 70 and you're a dame of the British Empire. And you don't give a shit anymore. And yeah. You don't give a shit, said, I think this is an intellectually dishonest question from you. I detect prurience in it and therefore I'm not going to answer you. Oh, I love her so much. Oh God, <laughs> but this is the kind so of thing, this is the kind of thing, because I would have entertained that question as a conversation among sexual equals who love talking about sexuality. And suddenly I saw there are actually lines you can draw later in life that can find patriarchy in elegant ways. So I was up for an academic job. Yes. I was at the dinner interview that they have. And this chair was like, kept bringing up me too to me. He kept bringing it up. He's like, but don't you think it's gone too far? Yeah. Don't you think it's a witch yeah. hunt? Don't you think it's a little too much? Yeah. And what I wanted to say, but couldn't because it was a job interview. Yes, <laughs> yes. He didn't even see that he was asking me for a kind of feminist absolution within the strictures yes. of him being the gatekeeper for me to get a job. Yes, and right, I, exactly. So I couldn't say to him what I wanted to say, which is like, I think that you're dealing with a lot of guilt and fear about your, you know, unsavory yes. relations with much younger women. Yes. Who you made feel smart just so you could have sex with them. Like, <laughs> exactly. I couldn't say that. Right. It was, so 
And I feel like only when you're things, a dame, only when, when I'm a dame, when they make us dames. <laughs> but I think that what's also interesting, and I felt this way for a long time, I think the appeal of younger women to these men is not just because of their, you know, tight bottoms or whatever. I mm-hmm. think it's because they're too young to know and to stand up for themselves. Yeah. I think that that's the appeal much more than they're like wax. The wax skin is like a signifier for yeah. an inability to, uh, to stand up for yourself or to, to be an equal partner. Yeah. And I think that that's what a lot of, a lot of it is like you, you're kind of a sucker. You're kind of a mark when you're young. And I think that I see it even in like second marriages. It's like, Oh, you divorced your wife who won't put up with your shit anymore yeah. so that you can have somebody who's just going to suck it up and, and like put up with your nonsense. Like, okay. Yeah. I get right. it. We get it. I am so grateful to have you here because we hope that like Manafort, some of these other overmen in the news will be punished for their crimes. Thank you for being here. Oh my God, thank you. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for today's show. What did you think? You know, we can take anything here. You can deny us an opportunity to buy Greenland. You can call us bedbugs. Just find me. I'm at page 88 and the show is at Real Trumpcast. And then head on over to Slate Plus and become a member. Today is your day. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you're not living your best life. You're missing out on all sorts of perks, including ad-free and bonus episodes, discounts to our live shows, and bragging rights to your podcast-loving friends because you can let them know you are supporting our work. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. He's the best one out there. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Everyone's bitching about me having the G7 next year at my club, the Doral Miami. So what? So what? Don't these people owe me some money? I'm trying to get it out of them. But, you know, they're, they're tight-fisted. Germany, France, what a bunch of cheapsteaks. They're going to get luxury like they've never had before. And they're going to pay. They are going to pay big league. By the way, by the way, I lose a lot of money being president. A lot of money. I'm just having it there out of convenience. Nothing else. I saw Sharknado, and I know that if we drop a nuclear device into a hurricane or a storm or a twister, it's going to blow it apart.